like that. Yeah, play for a second. Someone crossed this the other day. Had to give it a whirl on the pod. I hope you like it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Coming at you from St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada today. The site of a state of emergency for the last four or five days due to 75 plus centimeters of snow in one day and then two days later or no a day later another 20 centimeters so the city has been shut down everyone's been digging out and also everyone's been having fun walking to your neighbor's house putting it a bonfire sitting around drinking eating chips it's actually been kind of a fun time anyways my guest today is max hillebrand max is kind of a hard dude to nail down in terms of a description so i'm gonna borrow uh, his own description from his website in which he says that he is an open source entrepreneur supporting several bitcoin projects that build tools for sovereign individuals to defend their property rights liberties and privacy he is educating his peers by sharing invaluable knowledge in several hundreds of videos on the world crypto network he has an in-depth understanding of the sound monetary economics of bitcoin and the value proposition of immutable scarcity in this age of anarchy and money Uh, For my part, I had come across Max's work on the World Crypto Network and then kind of got a deeper look into who he was and his involvement in Bitcoin through the Crypto Economy and Citizen Book Bitcoin podcast hosted by Guy and Brady, respectively. And after listening to those shows, I I just had to speak with Max. I was blown away at his depth and breadth of knowledge, the way he articulated, you know, his understanding of Bitcoin how closely he was following developments and not being a coder or developer himself, his ability to articulate the implications of um, new developments in Bitcoin coming through Taproot as an example. And perhaps more than anything, I was just blown away at how the, the quality of Bitcoiner that Max was. I'm, you know, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but you know, he just seemed to really embody the principles, the ethos, the take take full advantage of the sovereignty and the liberty and the privacy and all the other things that Bitcoin offers. He seemed to be taking advantage of them to the max, pun intended. And um, so for that reason, I just thought, we, you know, I, I really want to talk to this guy. This conversation, as usual, there's no particular uh, direction. Uh, we just hopped on a call and uh, let the conversation flow wherever we wanted to take it. If you want to hear more from Max or you want to learn more about Max, his website is towardsliberty.com. And of course, you can find him on YouTube, on the World Crypto Network, as well as on Twitter, of course. Anyways, that's it. Enjoy. Let's do it. All right, here we are. Max, thanks for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, for sure, for sure. Anytime. I'm sorry for for messing up that yesterday. That was a very spontaneous uh, long trip travel. Uh, uh, coming in, um, but well, good that we meet now. Yeah, yeah, I, I heard you recently, um, both on Brady's Citizen Bitcoin and on Guy's uh, podcast, and I'm a big fan of those two guys. And uh, after hearing yeah. the one with you, I just thought uh, I got to talk to this guy. I'm sure we'd have a fun conversation, so that, that's why I reached out to you. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I I listened into some of your episodes, uh, and I really like the style. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I wanted to uh, ask you, you know, there's no particular uh, direction for this conversation. We're we're just having a chat. So if you have anything that's particularly on your mind or want to go somewhere, by all means, uh, take us there. But before we get going, I wanted to just get, if 
you know, if you're comfortable with it, some background on on you, like, you know, where you are and kind of, um, you know, how you got into this, but more importantly, like why and when it became so kind of all-encompassing uh, and important for you. Mm-hmm. For sure, yes. Um, uh, already now you're, you're recording already, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, great. Um, so, so yeah, so uh, my, my background is in Austrian economics, uh, and, and and that was something that I discovered long before I saw it on the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, you know, just uh, trying to understand human action and and uh, know uh, how, how we can set our goals and and what can we do to achieve them, uh, and ultimately the consequences of our actions. Uh, so that was something that that has always fascinated me, and and then especially with the study of Austrian economics, uh, and then really digging down into praxeology, uh, that that helped me clarify a lot a lot of things in my mind, and and uh, just reason about things that I found interesting, um, and that was something that again I discovered long before Bitcoin, and then when falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I could I could draw from that experience and and build upon that knowledge. Uh, that, that I came to understand on um, why money is important and, and how it should function to then see just a beautiful system of Bitcoin right? that, that is just so uh, such a such a stellar uh, application of Austrian theory. Uh, and um, well, yeah, but that's that's mainly my background. So economics, entrepreneurship, that, that area. Right. And so when you say background, do you mean you formally studied economics in school and you worked in that capacity? Well, I've, I started uh, picking up my first economics books when I was like nine or 10 years old. Uh, back then it was like Keynesian nonsense uh, that I didn't really understand. Uh, and uh, I thought to myself, either uh, I'm too stupid to understand economics uh, or the subject that these Keynesians are teaching is just wrong, uh, quite frankly. Um, and then a couple of years later, I discovered Austrian economics and, and read Mises and Hayek. Uh, and uh, then also went down uh, on, on this more academic side. Uh, so was, like my high school diploma in a economics focus and, and then a bachelor's degree in economics and banking. Um, so, so both uh, having the, let's say, official uh, paperwork uh, that I studied economics, uh, though by far the most that I've come to understand in economics was based on teachings that I got for free uh, in cyberspace, especially just by going through the archives of Mises.org and then finding the the great great books and lectures, especially uh, for example, Mary Rothbard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think our generation in particular, it's a very common uh, trait between all of us that we have our formal education, and then we have our YouTube, blog, podcast, etc. Education that we've accumulated over the years, and that you know certainly more relevant uh, than probably what we learned in school. Oh yeah, for sure, right? Because ultimately, it's a question of how do we come to learn anything, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'm a big fan of explaining this process. But right? so you first accumulate knowledge, other sources, uh, and that can be. Okay, so we're back from some technical difficulties, Max. Why don't you uh, hit me, hit me with that again? Yeah, yeah. So, the, so the question was right. Uh, the, the difference between studying in university and, and studying in cyberspace, and then I would say that that you know, based on the trivium of how we actually come to learn and to grow, uh, the, the first part uh, is is to accumulate knowledge, right? To to take external information uh, and and uh, to study basically, right? And and this is uh, this is what used to be done in universities, right? You go to the library there and you speak to the professors, and they give you knowledge. Right? Uh, but of course, uh, in cyberspace, we can do this uh, very tailor-made, right? Uh, if anyone uh, at any time has ever uploaded a specific piece of knowledge uh, to cyberspace, to the internet, uh, then you can you can download this information and accumulate it, right? So, so the, this first part 
uh, of, uh, of what universities used to do uh, is done much, much, much better in cyberspace, right? Just because it's better uh, search algorithms and more experts uh, sharing the knowledge. Um, the, the second part of, of studying is to actually understand uh, what you have accumulated, right? So to, to go to all the knowledge uh, that you have and to see which is true and which is false. And, and uh, that is something that is based on internal logic and reasoning. So there is no professor that can force you to understand anything right? or that can make you uh, really grasp a topic. Um, what, what a teacher, of course, and a good teacher can do uh, is to tailor, uh, share this, this knowledge specifically in a way that you might be able to understand it more, more fluently, more easily. Um, but, but still, the actual understanding itself comes from within. So again, here, universities don't really have much to offer other than having skilled teachers who package the information nicely. But again, the understanding is internal. Uh, and, and I would say that if you are, for example, in, in the comfort of your home uh, while studying in cyberspace, uh, you're probably more likely to actually understand something, especially when you're willing to learn it and when you're willing to accumulate this. Um, and ultimately, uh, the, the third step here is, is wisdom, which is applying what you've come to understood. Right, so, so taking the knowledge, understanding that, and then deciding whether it is true or false, and aligning your actions based on what is true and what is right, uh, and, and discarding those actions that are false uh, and wrong. Uh, and here again, uh, there is no external third party that, that can help you here, neither university nor cyberspace. This is uh, some human action that, that is intrinsic to your, to your ever being. So here, uh, these are just, you know, the, the one step that university used to be really, really good at, which was curating knowledge, just the external information and sharing it, uh, and sharing it. Uh, this is just much better done in cyberspace, you know, with, with better, uh, larger libraries and better search engines. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've always been a huge critic of, um, you know, standardized education and have sought out my own education for a long time and not, you know, to be more educated per se, but just, you know, my, and I'm, I'm sure I share this with so many people in the Bitcoin space, but my innate curiosity was just such that I wasn't satisfying it through the, the formal methods of, of education. Um, and I had to seek them out on my own. And I think probably, you know, a big part of the issue with the, the, uh, education system today, I'm not sure if I said education or communication before, but the education system today is, um, you know, you're, you're told to kind of ignore your curiosity in favor of regurgitating, you know, subject matter that other people have deemed relevant and important to you. And so I think what we, you know, the mistake is, or the thing that people should try to do, especially in the context of formal education, is try to align people with their curiosity. And then you unlock a, a, a huge amount of energy for your own exploration and your own education. You, it doesn't need to be driven by somebody else or whipped into shape. If, if you can align someone with their, with their own curiosity and then provide them the tools and the support and some guidance necessary to, you know, to be most efficient in their acquiring of knowledge and then applying, the, applying it later, then you know, that's what a real education system in my mind looks like. But you know, we're far away from that as it stands today. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're very right here, right? And it's a question of scalability. If, if you have in meet space, you know, a place where students and teachers gather, like in a university, uh, there are simply, you know, not enough teachers uh, and, and uh, too many students. Uh, and you somehow have to align this and, and, you know, build a strategy around it. And of course, this is then where, you know, centralized uh, curriculums uh, arise, right? That every student has to learn this and this and this 
so that there's at least a baseline where we can then structure, you know, a lecture and the, and the classroom and build on top of that. And, you know, it, it might work decently to a certain extent. But as you say, right, if, if your heart is not in it, if you do not really want to understand something, then nobody can make you understand. Mm -hmm. right? And on the contrary, if we have a very decentralized approach, right, where, where anyone can become a teacher uh, and the students now have to seek the knowledge specifically, right, rather than having it served uh, to you in a curriculum, uh, then you are only looking for that which you're actually truly wanting to understand. Yeah. And, and, and that is, that, that is uh, quite a powerful approach. Yeah, totally agree. And so, Max, are you, are you, I've heard you make reference to writing a thesis, a thesis and, and things like that. Are you currently in school? Are you doing a post-grad? Or, or... Uh, so, so I finished my bachelor's studies uh, last year in 2019, it was. Um, and, and there was, uh, there was a, a three-part um, kind of uh, thesis or well, well there, were, there were three independent theses that all together were part of the bachelor's program. Um, so, so the first was on project finance with cryptocurrencies. Um, the, the, the second one was on anarchy in money on the ethical economics of Bitcoin. And the third one uh, and the final most largest piece uh, was, um, uh, uh, what was the exact title? Um, uh, uh, Non-simulated shared ownership of scarce Bitcoin with multi-signatures. <laughs> uh, so kind of like a treatise of, uh, of all the many things I've learned. And what, like... How did your professor, like, react to these pieces, these papers, these theses, and and you know how, from where, what was her frame of reference for grading it? You know what I mean? Like, what was the response when you submitted this stuff, or even suggested that's what you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think quite jarring was was the second piece here on anarchy and money on the ethical economics of Bitcoin, uh, because uh, I wrote it uh, under a um, economics uh, professor. Uh, whom uh, was actually, uh, like to his credit, uh, I think one of the best professors I had, because although the curriculum forced him to uh, focus mainly on Keynesian nonsense, uh, he was always very critical and analytical um, of, uh, you know, the models and the axioms used in these models. Uh, and so we had uh, quite nice debates also during lectures uh, on, you know, the entire framework. So, so he knew that, that I had many flaws with uh, with the Keynesian approach, and that are uh, much more in favor of the Austrian approach, uh, and of course the thesis are, was was very much aligned with that. I mean, you see it in the title, right? Um, so uh, it was it was actually quite welcoming uh, with him, um, uh, and uh, it turned out to be uh, quite a uh, let's say a well well um, well discussed and well uh, just communicated topic. Uh, so it, it was quite a lot of fun to write. Uh, and especially to see his reaction to some of the more <laughs> radical uh, point of views in there. Right. And I have to imagine, you know, in the context of a classroom, right, you were saying, you know, we would have debates or back and forth, uh, back and forth, you know, from his perspective, he's probably dealing, 99% of his students are probably just show up, sit down, take notes, write exams, pass the course, and that's it. And he's got someone like you, who's in, you know, very unusually well versed in you know economics and history of money and all sorts of other uh, you know related topics to sit in the class. I mean, very enriching for the other students. But he must have thought you were a pretty unique student yourself, no? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that, that probably was the case, um, <laughs> and uh, also maybe a bit annoyed at some points uh, when sure. I really uh, because you know the problem is especially like when you when you go more into like the nuances of Keynesianism, um, it's it's a very advanced model that builds on a many many things, and within this model within this framework everything kind of makes sense. 
right? Though my problems always were not with the nuances of the model, but with the axioms of the model, mm-hmm. right? So th- that, for example, you just assume that humans have utility points, right? And they try to optimize this. Um, this is it, it is just like logically completely horrendous and, and not based in, in, in any reasoning. Um, though, of course, if you accept this to be true, you can build phenomenal complex models on top. And he wanted to discuss these very complex topics uh, within this model framework, but I was challenging the framework in and of itself. Right. And, and so that was always kind of a, a point of tension of uh, if we assume this is right, what can we build uh, with it rather than are these assumptions actually correct? Mm-hmm. And how did he grade your final papers? Oh, uh, I don't remember the exact rates, but it was, it was quite good. Right. Um, I mean, it, uh, uh, although he did not agree uh, on, on some of the aspects, um, I, I think it was, uh, he understood that it was quite well-reasoned. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he really valued that approach uh, of, of just, you know, practical logical rigor of very clearly defining base axioms and then building up, uh, on top of that. Uh, so, so, so that was quite valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's awesome, man. And just a question, you, you said you've been kind of interested in this subject matter for, you know, since you were 10 years old or whatever. Should, should I assume that you're in your early 20s, early to mid 20s? Yeah, exactly. I'm. Uh, I just calculated today. I'm 1.2 million blocks old, uh, which turns out to be uh, roughly 23 years. <laughs> right. So you were you got into this stuff a little bit before Bitcoin even existed, right? Yes. And I'm just wondering. I mean, and maybe you weren't deep enough into it at that early age. But if you were. Having an interest in Austrian economics and you know seeing economics differently than the standard orthodoxy, how did you square the way things, what the orthodox was versus the things that you were learning? And prior to stumbling upon Bitcoin, what did you see as a potential solution or way out of this? Because you know I I am in a similar case. You know I wasn't. You know, I've just been into, uh, you know, money and economics and stuff for a very long time. And prior to Bitcoin, the only thing I could see that, you know, could help or ameliorate this situation at all was was gold. You know, and all the gold bugs say, let's go back to a gold standard and this is how it's supposed to be and all the rest of it. But even though I thought that fundamentally that would be better than a fiat money system, I didn't see how reverting back to something like gold would fundamentally you know, change or improve the, the flaws that I saw in the existing system and their manifestations in society. So I'm just curious you know, how you were looking at solutions and their, their, um, their you know, potential effectiveness prior to stumbling upon Bitcoin. Oh, that is a very, very good point, uh, because I was uh, I was rather pessimistic back then and, and rather depressed because, you know, you see these these immense malinvestments and, and overconsumptions uh, on a huge global level uh, to, to unheard of levels with, with the crazy inflation of the last hundred years. Uh, and like what to do against that, right? Is this, especially like if, you, if you're like, if, you know, young student just uh, trying to understand all this and you're like, what the fuck are these guys doing? This is insane, <laughs> right? Um, so it, it, it was actually very, um, uh, well, deafening, right? You're, you're in this void of like, we have fucked up so tremendously over 100 years. How can, how can we ever fix this? Right? Yeah. Um, and, and of course, gold was, was always like the, the paper book answer, right? And, and that is what most Austrians focused on. 
And you know, although I very much agree, gold is a is a beautiful monetary system, and it is a neutral, uh, sound hard money system, absolutely. Um, and you know, that was an also you know, I started stacking my coins. Well, back then with gold, now it is Bitcoin, yeah. right? Um, and 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 that was at least something you know that I could do on a personal level. Um, though it was it was very much uh, depressing in the sense that um, it was it was such a such a like a horrendous train wreck uh, and. You know, there there was not really a clear option of, of fixing it because you know even a gold monetary standard has many many issues, right? Especially if you want to have a global monetary system, you somehow need to send gold uh, from one uh, part of the ocean to the other part of the ocean, right? So it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a very difficult thing to transfer gold, uh, and thus you put it in a centralized vault, right? And thus you have a central point of failure where governments can confiscate your gold, like with Order 6102, uh, uh, or, you know, j- just, you know, theft and bank runs and fractional reserve banking and all this. So the only paper book options that, um, that you know, a classical uh, Austrian economists proposed was, although quite, quite beautiful in, in general, very difficult to implement properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as we've seen historically, uh, there was always a centralization of gold holders uh, because of, you know, these limitations of needs-based money. Uh, and that was then always the point uh, of contention uh, where, where everything started falling down. Um, so that is something that Bitcoin really uh, has just shown me tremendously is to, is to actually give back hope uh, that we have a chance of fixing this. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree, and it's you know it's funny. I'm I'm ten years older than you, but you know very similar situation, and just being very interested and curious about these things, but looking out on the world and saying, "Damn, like there's some you know big problems out there," and I just don't see how you know it can be turned around. And even if we you know, I think the Austrians and sound money people, you know. Gold was the only best option available. So, of course, they, you know, that's what they rallied behind. But the fact is, is that, you know, we're, we're here where we are now as a result of gold previously having been the monetary standard in various points throughout history. And all it took was the swipe of a pen to, to undo it. And, uh, but again, it's like out of desperation. I mean, you, you pick the best option. And, uh, and I, you know, so I think, Gold wasn't sufficient for me to say, even if it was implemented again, that uh, even though, you know, like you stack your gold coins, that kind of stuff, I, I didn't I didn't see it as having the kind of revolutionary transformative impact that I wanted to see for the world because of my perception of the, the severity of the problems. And then Bitcoin comes along and it's like, you know, a, a rising sun on the horizon the beautiful orange coin coming up and uh and, and and you know we we all have different ways to get there and i i certainly missed it missed the significance on the first few passes how did you first come across it and what in particular was it about bitcoin that caused you to realize that this was you know quote unquote the thing you had been looking for yeah you know i think it's it's always the same story you you you, you hear bitcoin several times and friends tell about it maybe you read an article or two but you kind of ignore it, right? And then that was the same with me, um, which which is quite odd, right? Because both you're, you and you're I, primed, both, like, primed. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's it's like it's exactly the subject we're interested in. So why didn't we, uh, you know, look into it more in more detail earlier? Um, but well, of course, you know, sooner or later, you just repeatedly hear and hear and hear it again. Uh, so uh, then, for me, the point that that really made it click uh, was a video by Andreas Antonopoulos called The Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat, uh, which so perfectly <laughs> describes the, the anti-fragility of Bitcoin. 
that because it is a decentralized system that is actually a sewer rat, right? That, is, that lives and breathes and eats shit in the canals all day long, right? It's, it's just a dirty, filthy rat. But because of that, it, it gets so strong. It, it does not, it's not just robust against these external shocks. It actually thrives in such a situation, right? That, that the more stuff you throw against it, the more stronger it becomes. Right? And, and this point of view that Bitcoin is, is in a way a, a defensive tool that you can use and that the, the more dire the situation gets, the stronger the defensive tool becomes. Uh, and and this, was, this was really just what, what, what kind of switched my mind that Bitcoin is a weapon of defense, right? It's a way to protect your property rights and it does so in, on many, many different levels. Uh, and uh, of course, like uh, first and foremost, of course, 21 million, right? So there's no way to increase the money supply, uh, you know, the, to uh, what's something that you have not defined on your full note. I, I defined on my full note 21 million. So there's nobody, no third party that can change my consensus on my full note. Uh, and, and thus, there is no indirect theft of my property rights via inflation or increase of the money supply. Right? And then, of course, the second uh, uh, way of defending your property is against direct theft. Right? Even if you stack your gold coins, uh, someone comes and uh, breaks into your house, gives a five dollar ranch attack, and takes your gold coins, then you know that's that's quite a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we see that over and over and over again. Um, you know, probably most recently, like uh, Cuba, uh, the, like the crisis where uh, people were, were fleeing the island, and at the airport they had to uh, give all the gold coins uh, to the police. Right? That's you know that's that just many many occurrences like these. And of course, with a private key, uh, defense becomes uh, of your individual coins becomes much, much, much more easy, right? Because now you only have to defend uh, information rather than physical goods, which of course has different trade-offs. But in general, I would say it's cheaper to defend your property rights this way. Yeah. And was was there a particular eureka moment? You know, you touched Bitcoin a few times. Was there was was there a moment where all this kind of coalesced and sank in, and you you saw the light, as it were? Or it was just a steady progression over time. Well, I think like the one point uh, that kind of kicked me down the rabbit hole for good was that video by Andreas. Right. Um, and then ever since then, it, it's been basically, well, it's either like countless small mind blows every single day, <laughs> or you could just see it as one one gigantic uh, mind blowing event. Ever since then. <laughs> uh, but but I, I have I have not stopped uh, being in awe of this beautiful system. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you, man. I'll be, you know, listening to a podcast or reading an article or investigating something. And I'll just stop and be like, it's mo- much of the time out loud. I'll be like, holy fucking shit like you know i'll try to comprehend the significance of like what i'm reading or listening to and try to try to uh, imagine the implications and it's really hard because they're so far reaching and yeah i mean like as you just said you know my my mind continues to be blown on a regular basis oh yes and it's it actually causes physical pain right (laughs) (laughs) this this really is an issue and i remember just a couple days ago uh, we had a wasabi wallet research call on like uh uh, snickers uh which like a coin join protocol uh and here adam gibson had like a beautiful explanation uh and i was listening to 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 him like in the call uh, on on my headphones in a cafe right and just as you said i was like holy shit like yelling really 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 loud and all of a sudden people came to me like max are, are you okay what is happening <laughs> so 
so this is this is actually quite quite uh, challenging uh, to keep your calm uh, while your mind is, uh, is being sufficiently blown. Yeah, and so Max, you you came out of school, finished up school last year. Are you do you work full time in Bitcoin, or do you have a you know a non Bitcoin related job? I know I think I heard you say that you're totally uh, compensated and operate in a you know in the, in the Bitcoin economy. You don't have a credit card, and you don't. You know, you use bit refill for purchasing stuff and things like that. So, do you exclusively work in Bitcoin, or do you have uh, something unrelated that you support yourself with? Well, I, I would say, uh, you know, ever since that one Andreas video, that my mind is occupied full time with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, though, though, of course, I was still, uh, you know, or actually after after that video, I actually started going to university. Uh, so for me, university was always more just like as a kind of official front, uh, you know, to to appear to you know the the first realm of, of you know status quo. Um, but but my mind and heart was definitely always full in uh, Bitcoin. Um, and then especially after the UASF uh, and No2x, um, you know, that mm -hmm. just proved so much to me. Uh, that is where uh, when I uh, started to sell all my fiat bags. Uh, so ever since then, uh, I'm, I at least have the vast majority of my holdings um, in, in Bitcoin and, of course, gold. Uh, and then also, you know, started to more and more contribute to free and open source projects in this space. Uh, and that has increased uh, tremendously even while I was in university. Right? Um, though then, uh, you know, since I think October uh, or so, like September, no, September uh, 2019, uh, that university stuff is done. And ever since then, I am full time Bitcoin. Um, and I've also quit my bank account. Uh, so I, you know, I earn Bitcoin, uh, I hold Bitcoin and I spend Bitcoin. Um, and I have completely opted out of, of the fiat realm and the fiat mindset. Yeah, that's awesome. man. I was at, you know, I've been traveling for, you know, over the last decade, living in various places. And, uh, you know, I, I remember coming home one Christmas time, and I got a visa debit card, right? I've never been into credit cards, because I just, it, the, the whole premise did, that didn't sit well with me. But um, the the Visa debit allowed you to you know spend your own money on the Visa network, which was handy for traveling, and so I got one of those, and um, they said, you know, your limit is going to be a thousand dollars, and you have to deposit a thousand dollars to establish that limit because you're a you know new customer at the bank, and I was like, yeah, okay, I mean it's it's my money, and basically the, they they made me put a deposit in and above like what my balance was that I could spend, which was, you know, weird, but I needed to to be able to spend my money abroad. So I did it. And they said, it's only going to last for 12 months. And uh, I came back 12 months later and I said, hey, uh, it's been 12 months. Can you, you know, uh, let go of that thousand dollar deposit? And they said, oh, no, actually, um, the, the policy changed now and it's going to be X amount of months more. And I said, oh, that's really cool. This is what I want you to do. Cash me out, cancel my account, and and close down the card. I'm out. Like I didn't even. I was just like, that is complete bullshit. I don't like, and I'm and I'm out. And uh, I just I just see. You know, obviously it's a very integrated and ingrained uh, system of money management and payments and stuff across the world. That's uh, that most people deal with. But um, I just you know we're we're obviously at the the tip of the spear where we're we're feeling these pain points and responding to them and trying to reconcile them reconcile them with both our our practical lives and our kind of inward philosophy and and ideas of the way things should be but these realizations are going to come to everybody at some point are they not 
Oh, oh yes, for sure, for sure, right? And and again, right, things like you and me are a bit radical and on the forefront here. But in general, we we just feel these problems very clearly. Uh, but but others have these problems as well, right? And and so as you say that, uh, you know, even with a debit card, right? I mean, if you know, it's it's your money. Still, it's not a credit card, right? It is a debit card. Uh, it you know, it it should be your money, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Right? You you still have to beg for permission for every single transaction that you make, right? And as you you know, as, as you've experienced here firsthand, uh, of course, there's nothing holding back uh, these companies and banks uh, to simply change the rules uh, under you, right? There's there, there's no full note. You you don't have a say in in the the rule set, uh, yeah. you have to ab- abide by the rules of others. And of course, they can change the rules at a whim. And, yeah. uh, and you know, that is something that, that you've here clearly experienced. Uh, so, you know, this, uh, this, this really uh, is, is quite uh, troublesome, but, you know, especially when traveling, uh, I've experienced now the last couple months, I think I've been to like nine or eight, 10 different countries. Um, we know without a bank, without even a, a way of getting local cash out of the bank, right? Um, I simply had like my Bitcoin wallet with me, right? <laughs> and that was it, right? So, so most of the things, you know, I could buy with Bitcoin directly, like flight tickets or something, hotels and all this. Um, and then, of course, if I if I wanted to get local food and I did not know an entrepreneur selling food for Bitcoin, then I found someone who wants to buy Bitcoin and who gives me local cash. <laughs> I then, of course, Bitcoin meetups or, you know, other places are great for this. Uh-huh. And so, like, for me, Bitcoin is like this international liquid monetary asset which I can use to get whatever I want. You know, even if it is across one additional hat with another medium of exchange, um, you know, when you change locales quite frequently, um, but but that, that is just it's it's it works flawlessly honestly. I've now since like for for over half a year now, I did not have the need once um, to to buy something with a bank account uh, because I could always get everything that I wanted either with Bitcoin directly or via one hop uh, in the fiat realm. Right? And you know for me my my, my main uh, my, my main goal is to defend my property rights. So I want to reduce the amount of seconds that I hold fiat currencies. Right. So the, the shorter, uh, you know, I hold it and the more swiftly I get rid of these fiat shitcoins, the better. Right? And, and here with this, it works quite well. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I love hearing that. I think apart from, you know, obviously a strong preference for hodling, you know, at this current stage, I think what prohibits a lot of people from doing that is just, you know, tax considerations in many jurisdictions. You know, that's just a nightmare of of if you want to do things by the book is is tracking all of that and reporting it in some capacity. Oh yes, absolutely. That that uh, that is quite a nightmare. Uh, you know, and of, of course, there is no legal way of getting around that, right? If if the if the paper rule book says so, uh, and you want to play by <laughs> these rules, then sure, uh, you unfortunately have to do so. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, the good thing is, with, with uh, for example, Germany that I'm based in, um, uh, is that, you know, if you hold uh, onto your gold or Bitcoin uh, for longer than one year, and then you buy goods or services, or even sell gold or Bitcoin, uh, in general, even against fiat currencies, uh, then uh, there's no tax obligation whatsoever. That's awesome. Uh, so, so that... Yeah, so so that is kind of like a forced huddle, basically. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still bad because some third party, uh, you know, meddles in your businesses. You know, if you should, if you want to hold or not, uh, should be up to you, right? Sure. Of course. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, but at least that's uh, it's quite nice for a low time preference mentality. Yeah, absolutely. And I ho- hopefully more jurisdictions adopt something like that because you know that would make things a lot smoother. Uh, but just to go back a couple minutes ago, you said you know, the majority of my holdings are now in Bitcoin and gold, of course. 
What is your logic reasoning behind continuing to uh, con hold some of your assets in gold? Well, um, Bitcoin is the best money of cyberspace uh, that we've so far invented. Uh, and gold is by far the best money in meat space uh, that has ever existed. Uh, I mean, I mean to, to challenge gold is kind of like challenging like 100 million years of history and so however long humans have used this precious metal, uh, you know, to, to store their wealth in. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a hoopers to say that, that Bitcoin is better than gold uh, because, I mean, Bitcoin is only about 11 years old and gold a tiny bit older. Right? So uh, for me, gold is a perfect hedge against Bitcoin, right? I do believe that even in the future, we will continue exploring cyberspace and we need cyberspace money in cyberspace. And Bitcoin is exactly that. Right? And I think Bitcoin is probably the best, uh, the, the, or at least right now, it is the best uh, that I could find. Maybe there are better tools in the future. I don't know. I don't think so, actually. Um, but uh, no, for if something happens to cyberspace, you know, I don't know, uh, like, uh, I mean, we're probably still in the first world war, but you know, if another active war comes out along and, I don't know, or just the, the sun rays or whatever, uh, disrupting all of cyberspace, then gold is a pretty damn good money, especially if you yourself hold the gold coins. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very liquid medium of exchange that, that most anybody would want uh, for goods and services. Uh, so, you know, there, there are countless stories of war times where, uh, you know, uh, uh, refugees are fleeing from the war front uh, and you know, there's, a, there's a border control officer or something like a police uh, man uh, who, who does not want them uh, to pass. And if you have a gold pouch or a gold coin and you can bribe him with that gold coin, uh, then he will let you through and that will quite literally save your life. Uh, so in, in many cases, uh, there, you know, gold will uh, like actually save you uh, from, from the many uncertainties. Uh, and uh, that is something that, of course, Bitcoin can do as well, um, but not as good in cyberspace, especially in the situations where you need it most, most thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, and just on that point also, and nobody has a crystal ball, I get that. And, you know, we're all trying to improve things. But in the context of some of the examples that you just provided, you know, in wartime, people, you know, bribe officials with gold watches or coins or whatever. And and given your familiarity with the uh, mismanagement and the faults of the current, you know, Keynesian economic system that uh, prevails around the world today, where do you think we're headed? When and what does it look like when it... Uh, if, if you presume it's going to be unwound in some capacity, what do you presume that looks like? Um, well, maybe an example from recent history, right? After 2001, um, the, uh, you know, there was a huge increase in money supply, uh, and that ultimately led to a bunch of prosperity, right? 2005, 2006 were great years. Uh, everyone was wealthy. Everyone was spending. It was awesome. But then there was a big bust, right? And that was 2007, 2008. Uh, and uh, just huge illiquidities, um, uh, a huge effort to uh, reallocate resources that have been wasted previously. Right? Uh, and uh, th that was, of course, like the huge world financial crisis, right? Uh, however, I think it was just uh, the tip of the iceberg uh, because uh, this, this whole um, malinvestment uh, or, or misallocation of resources has not just happened since the 2000s. It has happened since 1919 and like since 1913. Right? Uh, like with, uh, you know, the, the like Prussian empires uh, printing gold, uh, you know, that started then in the First World War and America printing even more money and, and so on. 
Um, and the money printing has never stopped. To, so as far as I'm concerned, the First World War is still fully in swing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's just been money printing nonstop. And this, and this is a praxeological truth, always leads to malinvestment and overconsumption of resources. So this means we build shit that we don't need, and we eat too much of the food that we actually don't have. Right? And that is a very, very dangerous uh, supposition. Right? The, the capital that you have, you waste it uh, by, by putting it to uses that are not that uh, important. Uh, plus, you eat way too much of it. Right? So you, you invest too much in the shit that you actually don't need. Uh, and that is a boom, right? Uh, that you know, everyone is, is spending, everyone is happy. And I think that's kind of what the last 100 years has been. Mm-hmm. And though uh, inevitably, with every boom, there comes a bust. And the bust is actually the good thing, right? Then we realize that we have consumed too much and that we have invested in wrong things, right? And then we take this malinvested capital and we put it to better use, to something that is actually useful, that actually solves pressing problems, right? So so the bust is this realignment uh, of the production stages throughout the global economy. And that is very, very much needed, right? And the sooner, the better. However, this, uh, this reallocation process is brutal. It is, it is very, very brutal because, uh, you know, many entrepreneurs and actors have, uh, you know, planned their life based on this current trend, you know, of, uh, of just living in the boom nonstop. I mean, there's nobody alive today uh, that knows a period of hard money. Like all of our mindsets, all our, our time preference are misaligned. Uh, and uh, ultimately, that will come home to roost. And when it does so, then it's, uh, I, I really don't think it is, it is going to be that pretty. Um, you know, I've, I've been much more concerned with this before I discovered Bitcoin right, because there was no end of the boom in sight. Right. Right? There was just, oh, they're going to keep on printing and printing and printing and it's never going to stop and it's going to get worse and worse and worse, exponentially so. Right? But now at least with Bitcoin, we have an option to opt out and to do our part in stopping the boom and uh, trying to get the bust here quicker. Right? Because the quicker we reallocate these resources, the more sooner we can heal. Uh, and then prosper again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I share that that sentiment. And like I said, nobody nobody has a, a crystal ball, but it's just when you look at it all, it's I'm so grateful that Bitcoin is you know is that uh, car alongside the train that people can jump on before it heads off the cliff. But it still seems as though a lot of people are going to still be on the train, and it, it just the the chaos that that might ensue is is terrifying, really. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and even if you have the tools to protect your property rights, um, you know, for example, out of Bitcoin, let's, let's just say you have a bunch of gold coins, right, physically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but however, you live in an economy that is collapsing, similar to how Venezuela is collapsing right now, which I think is still kindergarten to what might come in the future. Mm-hmm. There is no food. <laughs> there, there, there is no grain. There is no wheat. There is no steak. There is no food. Period. Yeah. Even if you have the capital to, that you would want to apply by buying food, there is no food to buy. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're still going to start even though you have the capital. Right? So, so that's the thing. Even if you hold all of the Bitcoins and even if you have them protected by elaborate multi-sig time-locked scripts or whatever, there, will not, or there, there are not enough resources to sustain the life that we are currently living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when that comes home to roost, regardless of how well prepared you are, uh, it's yeah. And this kind of brings me to a related question that I've been, you know, thinking about recently. And 
you know, so in, on the one hand, you could say that, you know, uh, issuing, you know, tremendous amounts of debt is in a way bringing forward the future, right? Before it's, it's time, you're, you're stealing, you're stealing value and time from the future in, in a way with debt. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, we talk a lot about um, how, you know, the government control of money and inflation and the the inefficiencies that are generated um, or imposed on an economy by such an enormous state apparatus, the inefficiencies of ca- capital allocation and uh, just you know the inefficiencies inherent in not allowing supply and demand to operate freely um how much of a suppressive effect has that had on you know the economy and our society and culture and so me my my question which i'd just like to hear your thoughts on is you know right now the way the world is today are we like more advanced is our quality of life better than it should be as a result of bringing forward that value from the future or is it far you know less than it should be because of the suppressive effect of the state and the state control of money and the soft money system that's prevailed over the last hundred years let's say do you know what i mean yes yes very good question and this this goes kind of aligned with what Friedrich Bastiat is saying with the seen and the unseen Right. Uh, you know, a classical example with this would be, for example, uh, you know, the efforts uh, of, of space travel and the moon landing in, in 1960s. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was a, a tremendous allocation of resources. Right. That they cost unbelievable amounts of man hours of you know of know-how of resources to build the space crash and that you know all the like all the stuff that was was destroyed you know in in, in just failed attempts and all this. Um, and you know, ultimately, yes. You know, we, we did discover space travel, and yes, we you know we apparently landed people on the moon too, right? Um, though the the question is, what else could we have done with these resources? Right? Yes, we, it seems that we're prosperous, right? All of a sudden, we have like satellites in space, great. But what else could we have done? Right? I don't know. For example, if we would have used that capital uh, and uh, you know build electric drones, for example, uh, that you know covered within our atmosphere. Uh, could we not have discovered much more efficient ways of flying around uh, this planet? Right? Uh, for example, right? um, there are there are un- uncountable things uh, that we could have done with this money uh, otherwise, or with this capital otherwise. And just because we ha- we have something like, for example, uh, you know, uh, spaceships now and, and satellites and GPS, um, it does not mean that a they were actually needed. Right? That we really have to be on the moon in the 1960s. Right. Uh, and what else could we have done with this? Right. And also or, or, and when like it's a question of timing also. Right? Having satellites is great. Right. But how about we have them like 30 years later? Mm-hmm. Right. And in 30 years later, we have all the resources that we have invested within this time frame to be more efficient in the, actually achieving these goals. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe we could have landed a moon, uh, a man on the moon with a fraction of uh, the capital employed if we would have waited 30 years until we know about more efficient ways of actually achieving this thing. Right? So that, that is the seen and the unseen. Uh, yes, we, it seems that we have a lot of prosperity right now, but is it actually the case? Mm-hmm. Right? And how do you know so? Right? Where could we have been if we would have not misallocated all these resources with fiat money printing? Right, and that's, that's precisely the genesis of, of the question for me, because I think about these things, and I'm, I'm more on the side of we would be, 
or I, actually I'm I'm solidly on the side of I think we'd be much better off if for no other reason because better off is all is obviously subjective because where we would be would be a far more um a far more precise representation of or manifestation of pure supp- market you know supply and demand so we would be you know as close as we could possibly be to where all of those inputs of supply and demand in the market determine we should be versus this kind of perverse state that we find ourselves in that is somewhat uh, derived in a manifestation of you know market pure market dynamics but largely a manifestation of intervention you know government money state apparatus and to your point about the, the space race and going to space i mean that was a purely state driven um initiative and you know just you know i think space is super cool and i look forward to the the history the the future of space and what spacex is doing and i'm not i'm you know all for innovation for sure but it it is an example where you know the least efficient allocator uh, of resources and the person that's intervening in the market in in inefficient and non you know um yeah non-market determined ways is making these decisions and what is the 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 implications of that in terms of quote unquote where we are as a civilization? And absolutely, absolutely right. And this this is just an inherent fact of scarcity. Like this is an axiom. This is a baseline thing. And that was part of my, my third thesis, right? I was on scarcity. So th- that there are goods, right? So they're not bads. They're actually goods. So they're useful <laughs> things, right? And these things are scarce, meaning that they're exclusive and limited in quantity. So, for example, right, if there's Alice and Bob on an island and there is a tree and Alice cuts down the tree to uh, you know, get a wood log, uh, either Alice can use this wood log to build a boat or Bob can use the same wood log to build a house. There is no way that Alice and Bob can both achieve the same goals, Alice, the boat and Bob, the house, uh, with the same wood log. Right? So it's exclusive. Either Alice uses it or Bob. And there's not enough wood for everyone to go around to fulfill everyone's need. So there's a potential of conflict. Who can actually control this specific wood law? Is it Alice or is it Bob? And this is then a question of how do we allocate resources? I would say there are three main different ways of doing this. The first would be complete slavery. Um, where we, uh, or no, sorry, the, the first would be communism, basically, where everyone can have everything, right? And you just, uh, for, from each uh, to his ab- uh, ability, to each according to his need, right? Uh, so just take whatever you want, right? And although that sounds fun, but it's still, I mean, there's only one log of wood. <laughs> Who gets it, Alice or Bob? Like, this is, this is exclusive and limited. Mm-hmm. Um, the, either one, it cannot be both, like both needed, but only one can have it. So communism doesn't solve it. It's ju- it just kind of denies this fundamental truth of scarcity. Right? Um, then the second would be slavery, which is the system we're currently living in. We have a ruling class, right? the bureaucrats, uh, and these, uh, this ruling class can decide what to do. Uh, and you can, uh, then they can force others to live by these rules that they have made up. Right? So for example, Charlie comes to the island and dictates that uh, Alice will build the, the tree. So this is, uh, or can have the tree. Um, you know, this would be slavery. Right? We have the master class dictating how to allocate resources. I know that is the state, that is any type of democracy or monarchy. It doesn't really matter. Uh, as soon as there is coercion involved, right? 
And then the third option, which I personally think is, is the only reasonable, uh, is uh, one of uh, freedom, where uh, Alice and Bob you know, have their own property and they can use their own property exactly to their own liking. Right? And so the question is, how do you get that property? Uh, and here it is either by homesteading, right? on the lonely island, Alice cuts down the tree. So Alice you know, intermingled her labor and her work with this tree. Thus it is hers and she can do with it whatever she wants or by voluntarily exchanging. So after Alice has cut down this uh, log of wood, then she can exchange it with Bob um, uh, or like with some other good of Bob, uh, uh, but only if Alice consensually agrees to it. Right? Uh, and uh, this is then the, I would say the only way of reasonably allocating scarce resources is by letting everyone do with his own stuff what he wants to do. Right? And everyone individually has the ultimate choice of where to allocate his own property and resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in, in the climate, the political climate that we find ourselves in today, I mean, it's maddening for many reasons, but I, and this is something that I articulate pretty frequently, re, you know, lately, but it's just that, how is it that we have somehow come to a, you know, a, a way of behaving, a way of thinking about things that is other than prioritizing or optimizing for freedom. Like, I, I feel like that's a very difficult thing to to argue with. Like, should should we not be designing things to optimize for freedom? Because if we're not doing that, then, you know, we're, we're, we're optimizing or we're building things for oppression, oppression on a range, of course, you know, on a spectrum of, of degree. But if, 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 if our political systems, if our systems of governance or whatever they may be are not optimizing for freedom, then what the hell are we optimizing for? And I think what's, what's so interesting about Bitcoin is Bitcoin seems to me to be the key to allow, you know, to really allow that for the first time. Because any other previous optimization, let's call it for freedom, fell into a variety of different traps that made it unsustainable ultimately. But Bitcoin seems to be the thing that, you know, of course, nothing is a foregone conclusion, but it provides the potential for us to actually optimize for freedom. And it's such a paradigm, you know, shifting perspective that it instills once you be begin to understand it, that obviously for most people around the world today, the implications of it and the potential, you know, usefulness of it is not apparent. And we're going down, you know, this continued road of saying, for all the you know the problems that we see and for the inequality and all that kind of stuff that the solution is the very thing that caused it in the first place is the 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 waste inherent in not allowing supply and demand to operate freely and in and in you know bestowing the responsibility or or the power or the or you know, the yeah, bestowing that job of allocating resources on an ever-growing, um, you know, government that represents, or group of people that represents a huge imbalance of power and a greater inefficiency in the market and in the relationship between the, what you were just describing as, you know, supply and demand. And the greater that, you know, that inefficiency becomes, the more inequality we're going to get. And until we realize that we need to, you know, really spin that thinking on its head and go in the reverse direction is difficult to see how things improve. Absolutely. And I think one cutting edge example of exactly what you've just described is what we see currently with the climate change debate. 
right? So, so obviously, uh, you know, the, the, the planet is, is pretty fucked up. Uh, so, you know, there's, you know there's, there's a lot of waste flying around all the places. So there's, there's no question that there is a problem, right? Now, I would personally say that the problem is based on having 100 years of fiat printing and 100 years of malinvestment and overconsumption. That turns out to be pretty wasteful, including for the environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, though, however, there are, you know, uh, the, the, these uh, uh, global warming hooligans, basically, uh, who, then, uh, who then propose fascism, right? Uh, who say, you're not allowed to drive a diesel car. And if you drive a diesel car, uh, I will arrest you and I will shoot you and, uh, and, you know, I will take your property. Well, that is fascism. That is ecological fascism. Yes, there is a problem. Uh, but the solution to the problem is not, more for, uh, is not more coercion and not more fascism. The solution is uh, to actually allocate resources uh, more adequately. Right? So, for example, if you would start go, going out and banning all the diesel cars, then this means all the capital that we've already built, that is already existing, that is already functional, we now start wasting this capital of actually destroying a car that is still very functional right? and, and can still go from A to B. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that is more destruction. Right? Which, but, but destruction is wasteful. That is actually bad for the environment. Like we have to build a new car right, to actually fulfill the same thing. So we have to employ, again, all the labor, all the, the know-how and the knowledge, uh, all the physical resources uh, to, to build a new car just so that the fascists can have their right in saying that the old, the old bad diesel cars are gone. Right? But, but this is exactly it. Right? It's, it's a question of how do we allocate these resources? And even though we have fucked up, how do we use the resources at our disposal right now, even those that come from metal investment over consumption? But how do we use these resources now to actually allocate them efficiently? And the solution is not to force people to throw away perfectly functioning tools. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's one of the issues you know, inherent in this problem is just that people lack the faith to trust you know, free people acting freely. You know, they, they need more certainty. They need to be patted on the head in the back more. They need to know that somebody's going to take care of it, even though, you know, I think you could, it doesn't take that much um, education or information to see the fault in that way of thinking, you know, the faith or the trust or whatever you want to call it that needs to be put in things operating freely versus having some authority figure, some central power figure, whatever, make you feel comfortable and say, we'll take care of this is, you know, obviously much more appealing. And I think one of the problems with that is the, you know, the, the larger that apparatus is, you know, the, the more that someone external to us um, takes responsibility from us, I think it just trains, because we have inherent demand. And, you know, you could ask me like, John, do you care about the environment? And I would say, yeah, you know, tremendously. I, I I want to preserve the environment. I want it to be as clean and healthy as 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 it can possibly be. Or you know, let's say this question is posed to somebody else. I'm a bad example, but um, but there the demand they have for that, which is there is demand now. Whether their demand means they're going to go and plant trees in the rainforest or they're just going to turn off their lights when they leave the house, it's on a spectrum, of course. But when this large you know state apparatus says okay well we'll enact regulations that will take care of that and we'll we'll you know do this and we'll do that it's actually kind of robbing in the individuals from the expression of 
their inherent demand, and it's taking the responsibility off their shoulders, which perhaps in many cases they're only too happy to accept because it means less work for them, and you know they feel good enough about themselves to let it happen. But I just think it's it's you know, and this this get this conversation kind of ends in the nanny state mentality that develops as a result of the state taking care of everything, where people just think I don't, as an individual, have to manage this, take responsibility for this, change this, you know, do whatever, because there's a lar- there's an apparatus, there's a power larger than me that's far more effective than I could ever be. That's far you know that that will that will take care of it for me, and uh, you know I just think that's. Ultimate, that leads to a very bad place ultimately, and I think we have enough examples in history to to confirm that. But just one fo- final point on that is I was you know thinking along this track recently, and um, you know I, I was kind of thinking in terms of how regulations actually rather than solving problems because I think you could you could define regulations pretty easily by saying you know anything that happens that's outside the scope of you know supply and demand in the free market you could probably define that as by definition wasteful. Um, But regulations in themselves seem to, rather than fix problems, actually isolate problems. And the example that I was thought of in my mind is, you know, drug use, right? Let's say, you know, heroin or something like that. When the regulations around that, obviously their intent is to limit use, make the community safer, preserve life, whatever it might be, the stated objectives. But in fact, you because you the way that the regulations act on that, you actually isolate the very worst aspect of it, which is, you know, that the 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 health, the, the negative health effects on, or the, sorry, the negative effects on your health and your life as a result of engaging in that behavior, and you isolate them. So you have people in alleyways overdosing, and you have it destroying families and people's lives and stuff like that. Whereas if the regulation was not in place, then the demand that that user has for safe injection sites, you know, counseling or whatever, could all be met by the free market to actually, you know, not isolate the worst, the 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 most the worst potential outcome of that behavior, and actually kind of pad it or pillow it with you know services that that individual is inherently demanding and is met by the free market. But because of the regulation, none of that is possible. I know that was super long-winded. I could have said that more concisely, but there you go. No, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, taking an example, uh, try to micromanage your kids, right, and tell them exactly what to do, when to do, and how to do it. That's going to work for like five seconds, and then they're going to jump around all over the place, <laughs> right? So, so if you want to be that central bureaucrat who, who micromanages everything in your beautiful little model, uh, sooner or later, you're going to get wrecked, right? Uh, and, and that is exactly the problem, right? Uh, especially because there is no feedback loop for central uh, planners, right? Uh, they, they, they have their beautiful model and they have this perfect plan step by step in the agenda uh, on, on how to eradicate heroin uh, addiction uh, in only uh, 30 days. Uh, so they have it all planned out. But then what if it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? They will just come up with the next plan. Right? And, and uh, they will just keep on stealing money to fund their endeavors to eradicate heroin addiction. Right? So, on, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm not saying that, that you know, free individuals on, on the free market uh, will, will all of a sudden solve all the problems flawlessly and that everything will be perfect. No, like even if you as a free person, you know, have a, have a plan of maybe, I don't know, helping your family member uh, to, to get rid of that addiction, right? Uh, and you maybe have a plan and insight on, on how you want to accomplish this, right? 
I'm not saying that the plan is going to be perfect just because you're not a bureaucrat, mm-hmm. right? But I'm saying that if your plan does not work, then you will find out about it. And you will have wasted your time and the time of all others involved and all the resources uh, that you have employed uh, because you have not achieved that the end that you actually wanted to achieve. Right? And so you have a direct feedback loop that what you've done so far doesn't work. And maybe you learn out of that and find a different strategy that actually works. Right? So, so it's not that the free market is perfect and will solve all the problems. But in a free market, we actually know when we make mistakes. Right? And we can actually learn from these mistakes and grow out of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is just something that is inherently lacking. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I totally agree. And, and I, don't, uh, I don't think the free market solves, you know, it, it provides perfect solutions for everything. But I think the point about it is, is that it provides the best solution available. You know, and that's the, the thing that, that people have to... Uh, to realize, and uh, I, I, there's a lot wrapped up in this, and we should probably move on. But I just think that, you know, people have. This is why I think you know personal development and and independent education and all this stuff is so, uh, so important. Because if you're not, if you can't trust yourself, if you're not, uh, you know, if you don't understand yourself on a on a fairly deep level then it's going to be very easy for you to be drawn in a, a certain direction or to believe a certain thing or to not question this or that. And so, you know, and of course, this is, I think this pervades the Bitcoin community and that we're, we're people that, yes, definitely interested in economics and, uh, you know, the history of money and what Bitcoin represents and all the cool things that are going to be possible with it. But I think we're also, you know, a group of individuals dispersed and not in communication, but who value these same traits and who are curious and who, you know, desire to understand ourselves to the extent possible and desire to take responsibility for ourselves uh, to the extent possible and, and all that kind of stuff. And which is why it's so cool to, uh, to interact with this community. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right? And, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why, why exactly this, this is so appealing uh, to this particular type of, of this individual, because in general, I would say that that most individuals do, or like most people are not even individuals, right? They don't even care about their individual sovereignty and, and freedom. Right. Uh, they are all right with the status quo and they will just move along with the herd. Uh, and I, I really do believe that, that this inherent thrive for, um, you know, for sovereignty, for, for freedom uh, and, and uh, for making your own path uh, is, is, is kept for, for not that many people uh, in, in society. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're like, for example, what there were like 3% of the American uh, population actually took part in the war of, uh, of, of independence, right? So it wasn't really everyone, even though here again, like we have the settlements uh, like wagering out to a completely new continent uh, and, and, you know, taking on huge uncertainty risks just to make it on their own, right? So they were already probably the more radical, um, uh, you know, liberty-minded fo- uh, folk, yeah. but still even there, only a fraction of, of that already selected group were actually active to defending their property and their liberty. Uh, and I, I think we might see something again here uh, rather similar, that, that Bitcoin, you know, all the people, you know, on, 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 in the world that actually use modern technologies in general, right, is already a fraction, mm-hmm. right? It, it's like your grandma is probably not included, right? uh, <laughs> let alone, you know, some of in other countries or wherever. Um, but then out of all these already tech-savvy individuals, still only a fraction of them actually care about their property and their sovereignty that much that they will wager on a tremendous cost 
you know, of, you know, time invested, uh, of, of opportunity cost and, and all this to actually learn how to use this technology properly to defend their property rights. Yeah. Right. So, so it's, I'm, that's also why I'm, why I'm not that kind of intrigued on, on quote unquote mass adoption or hyper Bitcoinization, because I really do think that uh, this, there are not too many uh, who, who really value this at most who are willing to sacrifice tremendous levels of comfort and convenience uh, just to gain their uh, their liberty. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and along that line, you know, using you as an example, so, you know, obviously you feel the way you do about all this stuff, um, but you've chosen to be out in the public with it. You know, you create content, you educate. I've, you know, seen you speak at various, you know, meetups and conferences and talks and stuff like that. What was it for you that, you know, inspired you, motivated you, compelled you to not, you know, sit tight as an anon and just, you know, be private and stack your sats and do all this? What was it in your mind that compelled you to express your interest in this and you stress the, the, uh, the potential implicate positive implications and all that. And that was definitely something that I very much contemplated, um, you know, b b before uh, publicly attributing, um, my name and my identity to all this. Uh, and I think first and foremost, it, it wasn't a thrive to actually learn. And I've experienced now, uh, through, through many steps that by teaching, uh, I learn best. Uh, so if, if I actually really need to understand a subject thoroughly, um, uh, then I, I, I should strive to teach it, and that will give me the motivation to, to actually learn and, and grow, uh, and you know, also to get the feedback. Right? If, if you teach something and the student doesn't understand it, this means that you as a teacher didn't understand it either, mm -hmm. right? because you could not adequate, adequately um, you know, convey that knowledge itself. Um, so, uh, and, and further, you know, back to the trivium, which we discussed first, is uh, teaching and, or speaking in general is action. It is wisdom, right? If you speak truth, you are a wise person. Uh, and thus, by, by speaking and applying what you know to be truthful, um, it, it, it starts this virtual cycle uh, of, of you, know, you spreading the knowledge, um, gaining feedback from others, which is, again, internal or, or external input right, that, uh, that, will, that you can use to further understand and grow uh, to then again teach this stuff, right? Uh, so, so for me, I, I've just come to to understand that that teaching is a great way for me personally to grow. Um, and uh, you know, further, uh, this is this is kind of like a, a like moral duty, basically. Like if if you see uh, you know the train rolling down the cliff, uh, are you just going to stand there silently and and you know twirl your thumbs uh, and and see what happens, right? And maybe jump off the board yourself? Well, I mean, sure, you can do that, but that's, it just doesn't sit right with me. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, if I have the knowledge uh, of, of how to use tools that uh, I can use to defend myself and others can use to defend themselves, then me sharing this knowledge, uh, again, non-scarce knowledge. This is not knowledge that is, that is mine that I have to defend. It's, it's, it's knowledge that, that has the potential to be shared freely and openly. And if I do so, I reduce the knowledge differential. I, for example, I know a lot about economics and, and the economics of Bitcoin, right? Um, so if I share some of that with, for example, the audience listening to the podcast, I'm not giving up the knowledge, right? I'm not all of a sudden dumber and, and have sacrificed that. Um, rather, I've, I've reduced this knowledge differential, which means that my peers now are more skillful. They are more knowledgeable. Uh, and thus, also, this means that my peers now can help me. 
right? And they can teach something that I don't know, uh, or they can they can produce a service now based on the tools that I've that I've told them, right? And they can uh, be productive in the division of labor, right? So if I want to have a fruitful Bitcoin economy, uh, then there should be more peers that are more knowledgeable about all these tools and strategies, because then I can ask them to you know produce goods and services for me in the agora of the marketplace, yeah. right? So so, so these are basically the main reasons, to, to learn myself and to grow the community uh, so uh, to have a better variety of division of labor in the second realm of Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I really like that. And, and, you know, my own approach has been something similar. And, you know, my approach to knowledge in general has always been, um, you know, like I want to speak about the things that I'm interested in. Of course, you know, because I get some satisfaction out of articulating my own thoughts and clarifying them, taking them from my head to, you know, my mouth or to the word on the page or something like that. But more importantly, as you said, is, you know, you learn when you explore and part of exploring is articulating. And, you know, I would never classify anything I've ever done as quote unquote teach. But, you know, obviously, if you're saying something that you know, other people are uh, interested in hearing and not yet knowledgeable about, I guess it falls into that category in some degree, to some degree. But um, is like the, you, I think you have to be pretty, like you have to be very open to just being flat out wrong, right? You, you, you articulate yourself the way you're seeing something. And part of the reason I do it is so that like people can, uh, you know, hit me up, whether this is in a recorded conversation or just a private, you know, local conversation and, and challenge and correct. And then, you know, I'm, I'm way better off for it. You know, you, it, it's one of the, you need to put yourself out there so you can get, you know, uh, so that you, you can, you can refine your ideas. Otherwise, you know, I think they just, they stay fairly preserved in their current state in your, in your head a lot of the time. Exactly right, and 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 that is what I mean with with getting new external input, right? So b because you speak, you manifest a reaction in others, right? And you can learn from this reaction right? because this is maybe they agree with you, right? Then you have a positive, uh, you know, feedback loop. Okay, what I said might be actually true, so this helps you in your understanding. Maybe they disagree with it, uh, and they will provide you with a counter argument, mm -hmm. and then you have a new perspective on the same topic, which again you can internally uh, try to understand and see their point behind it, and then actually find out if this is true or not. Like maybe you were right in the first place, or you were wrong, and they're actually on the right side of things. Yeah, right. Or it's something in between. Yeah. Right. But you you will only find that out if you actually open yourself up and if you actually share this knowledge, so that others can react on on what you think that you know, right? And what you think that you understand, uh, where, where you think that the truth actually lies. But you, like, there, there's, there's never this, this absolute uh, subjective truth, right? And, and getting someone else's opinion uh, will, in most cases, actually uh, you know, provide you with a more thorough understanding and a, a more you know, a holistic picture uh, of the topic. Yeah. And you know, having seen some of your stuff, you know, I think you do a great job. It looks like you enjoy uh, doing it, you know, in particular, you know, speaking up in, in front of a group of people and articulating your thoughts and answering questions and stuff. I just, it's a huge, um, you know, because you're so knowledgeable about so much of the, what's going on in the space, I think it's a, you know, a re really, you know, positive contribution that you're making. But I wanted to ask you, you know, at this stage in your life, you know, obviously recently came out of school, you're on fire with, with you know, this Bitcoin thing. Um do you have an ambition as to where you want this to go 
like for you or are you more because I know you're involved in, you know, uh, helping a variety of projects like Wasabi and and potentially more. But is your approach now just be involved, engage, speak that truth that you were just referring to and let it take you where it does? Or do you have, you know, clearly defined ambitions for kind of what you want to be and do in this uh, in this emerging economy or this space? Yeah, that is that is a very good question, and I think you know this this has uh, this has shifted uh, in me internally uh, quite frequently. Um, and though what I think is is like a general overarching strategy here is to scratch my own itch. Right? For example, back when I still had a fiat bank account and still fiat uh, shit coins, I needed a way to offload them. Right? Uh, and so I, I was looking for, for uh, you know, tools available and I found BISC, B-I-S-Q, the decentralized self-hosted uh, Bitcoin exchange. Uh, and so I used this personally, right? And then I found, oh, this is a beautiful tool. However, there are some, some like minor things with it that I don't like. This could be better. This I don't really understand uh, and so on. This is not explained anywhere else. Uh, and so I did it, right? I, I, I proposed the feature request was like, please, uh, this would be better if it's done like this. Uh, or here is a bug, please fix it. Or okay, let me write that part of the documentation because nobody else has explained it yet. Um, and you know all these things um, I I did. I, I started to contribute because I needed it, right? Uh, or then same uh, with with uh, something like how do you store your private key, right? So so I found the tool like the cold card, uh, which is just beautiful from the architecture type. Uh, and you know, I see. Okay, this is uh, this is nice, but the buttons are horrible. Please fix the buttons. Uh, and uh, it, like, uh, it would be nice to have an address explorer or or any other like feature request that I had. Uh, or again, like documentation, like nobody explained how to use it. So let me explain it because I somehow figured it out. Um, or then you know, now with uh, now with Wasabi Wallet, I need to have a way to hold my wealth privately because privacy is a great tool to defend your property rights. And if nobody knows that you have something then they cannot steal it. Uh, so here, privacy is a very important tool. And so I want to have my privacy, right? But the privacy of CoinJoin is based on the network effect, right? The more people are part of the CoinJoin, the higher your anonymity set. So if I want to have higher privacy for myself, I better explain others how to use Wasabi Wallet so that they start mixing their coins so that the privacy of my coins increases too, right? Um, so, so this is kind of like the, 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 the golden thread throughout all the many projects I've contributed to is that I personally was a number one power user. Uh, and because I really, really, really needed that specific tool at that specific point in time, I was willing to sacrifice my time and my energy uh, in order to build this project even further. Uh, and, and so far, just looking back on the last couple of years of contributions, this is a phenomenal way of allocating your own time and resources uh, quite properly. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, is the answer more just, you know, engage and use these these uh, solutions of, of sovereignty, let's call them these, you know, these things in, in the Bitcoin space, use them, test them, contribute to them by providing feedback and seeing where that goes? Is that Would that characterize it properly? Yes, precisely. And, and I call them Bitcoin weapons uh, because they are weapons of defense. Uh, you know, to uh, to claim your property and to make sure that nobody else can steal them. Uh, and you now, of course, that is a very general thing because there are many tools available. Right? And and I, I will hopefully continue to, um, you know, work on different tools for different points of use um, and, and for different uh, use cases. 
Um, but, but in general, yes, uh, I really like building uh, tools uh, for, of defense in uh, you know, any different uh, shapes and forms. Uh, and so far, this is something uh, that uh, I, I, would, uh, I would estimate that I will be doing in the future. But again, my individual valuations might change on the whim tomorrow. Sure. Right? So, so I also want to, want to keep open here and, and not nail myself down to just this one specific thing. Um, but, uh, but you know, in general, be there where I, I want to allocate my time and my energy to. Yeah. And Max, th- this is the last question before we break into the ra- rapid fire portion, if, if you're okay with that. But um, wanted to ask you just what's Max excited about the most these days? You know, we talk about having these, you know, mind blowing moments frequently. What is it that, you know, gives you the shivers, makes you jump out of bed, causes the most of those sort of, uh, you know, mind expanding moments. What, what are you most excited about and why are you excited about it? Oh, I mean, there, there's so, so, so many uh, good options to provide here as an answer. Um, you know, uh, lightning network, uh, coin joins or other privacy techniques. But I, th- I think in, in general, something that goes across all of these different aspects uh, is a soft fork consensus upgrade to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Taproot, uh, which implements uh, Schnorr signatures as well as Merkleized abstract syntax trees to have uh, much more private, uh, much more beautiful as uh, scripts uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, and you know this is this is a this is a tre- tremendous tremendous project that has now been in work since early 2016, once it was first uh, described on the Bitcoin Dev mailing list. And that has since gone through rigorous peer review on a conceptual level um, that uh, and now pretty much uh, the BIP being finalized, hopefully very soon and uh, officially proposed to the mailing list again um, as a BIP. Uh, hopefully uh, we could get uh, this tool into the Bitcoin protocol rather swiftly, uh, which, of course, is always the thing with Bitcoin. Um, and this will allow just so, so, so many things. Um, I'm, I'm really lost for words on, on how or what we can actually do just by having um, this new uh, signature type algorithm. Like, I mean, we can talk here about coin swaps, uh, or, uh, which, is, which is great for privacy, or, you know, advances to the Lightning Network, um, or, uh, you know, just more, more efficiency in general, more private multi-signatures. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there just, there's so, 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 so much uh, in, in the Taproot proposal. Uh, that even after years of, of studying it, I still uh, am, am, am blown away uh, by just the breadth of uh, and the scope of this one single update. Yeah, and I'll refer any listeners who want to hear you expand more on on Taproot to go to Guy and Brady's The Crypto Economy and, and Citizen Bitcoin podcast because you did obviously uh, break into it a little in a little bit more detail uh, on those pods. But I will ask you uh, for myself and everyone else listening is, you know, where can we, what's a great resource or great resource says uh, where we can learn more about Taproot? You just mentioned you've been studying it for a long time. Like wh- what are some of the best resources in your mind? Um, uh, there is, uh, I, w- I would say the original Bitcoin Death mailing list by Gregory Maxwell, I think in February, 2016 uh, of Taproot was, was actually quite uh, understandable, actually uh, quite approachable. Uh, so I can, I can recommend that. Um, and a bit more recent and much more in-depth is from the Bitcoin Optech Group, uh, a workshop that they did, uh, I think it was in New York. Um, and they have provided a lot of video material as well as a workshop of actual code. Um, but still, uh, like even I who cannot code can understand this workbook. 
Uh, it really just goes step by step, starting from you know randomness and elliptic curve cryptography, all the way to very advanced taproot script conditions. Um, and uh, this is this is on their GitHub, uh, and like they have a, a hosted uh, instance of their of their notebook too. So I can very much re can recommend this course. Uh, and maybe um, you know, as a as a video production that I've made was a conversation with Jonas Nick, a cryptographer at, at Blockstream, who is who's heavily uh, influenced Taproot proposal. Uh, and there, I think we have a two-hour conversation on the World Crypto Network uh, uh, titled "Everything You Need to Know About Schnorr and Taproot." And I, there, I really mean everything because it was a very dense conversation that I've listened to like four or five times uh, just to wrap my head around. Uh, because Jonas really is, is quite a bright mind, and he he could explain it quite uh, quite thoroughly. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean that that's basically it. Uh, but uh, again, just to highlight the Bitcoin Optech Group uh, Taproot Workshop on GitHub uh, is phenomenal. Okay, awesome. Uh, Max, do you have a little more time for some rapid fire questions? Oh, for sure. All right, perfect. So the, the the you know the way the thing with these is you can answer as long as short as you like. There's a the first section is uh, you can answer like with longer or, or they're longer questions rather, and then the last part is a just a quick word association. So the Great. first the first one is what is money? It's one of these questions that that, that is uh, that you can tackle in different ways. Money is a technology to remove uneasiness uh, throughout uh, the future. Uh, it's a tool to defend your property rights, uh, so that you do not have to spend everything today, but you can choose to spend some of your wealth tomorrow. If you had to explain Bitcoin to a ten-year-old, what would you say? It's magic internet money. How will you know if Bitcoin has failed? Oh, um, if I no longer can run a full note. What does Bitcoin succeeding look like to you? Uh, nobody being able to steal my wealth, neither through inflation nor through direct theft. Uh, and uh, nobody being able to f uh, force me to change my rules uh, on how my monetary asset functions. You have one resource, a book, article, podcast, episode, website, to refer someone who is just coming to Bitcoin. Which is it? Ah, mm. uh, uh, that's, that's a very tricky one. Um, if, it, if it really is only one, then I would say Man, Economy, and State with Power in Markets by Mary Rothbard, uh, the greatest book ever written on economics and praxeology. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone just entering the space? Don't trust. Very fine. What movie or song is most related to Bitcoin, in your opinion? Um, Reservoir Dogs. Can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? Bitcoin has never started if you do not run your own full node. And if you're prohibited from running a full node, it has failed. What is something about Bitcoin you don't understand very well or would like to spend more time on? Well, definitely the code base. Um, uh, but, but I mean, that is very broadly. And uh, even conceptually, uh, I would say mining is, is the area that I'm least familiar with. When, if ever, do you think the first central bank will start adding Bitcoin to their reserves? And will they exist at all in 20 years? Um, the market can stay uh, rational longer uh, than you can stay liquid. I would say central banks are here for a while longer. 
um, they probably already have Bitcoin, though. What have you learned about yourself or how have you changed, if at all, as a result of learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? Oh, God, that is uh, that is ineffable to put in, uh, in a quick <laughs> answer. Um, so much. Uh, one, so one, much. Of the, one, no, of the, one of the top I'm, ones. I'm one of the big ones. Uh, the confidence to venture into uneasiness and into uncertainty. Nice. What is your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion? If none on Bitcoin, any subject is okay. Uh, that the issuance rate of Bitcoin uh, via the mining reward has led to tremendous malinvestment and overconsumption, or sorry, malinvestment uh, of hashing power as well as overconsumption of block space. And that as soon as we hit the tail end of this issuance rate schedule, we will look back in horror of how we have wasted the precious resource, which is the Bitcoin time chain. Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years' time. Number go up. Uh, in five years' time, there will be 19 million Bitcoin in money supply. What is one question you'd like to see added to this list? Uh, that's another damn good question. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Who was one of uh, the great teachers or mentors of yours in the Bitcoin space? Okay, last part. It's a word association, so I'm just going to say a word, and you tell me the first things that come first thing that comes to your mind. Yes. Democracy. Uh, a tyranny. The Lightning Network. Uh, <laughs> privacy, scalability. Gov both. Government. Uh, uh, cronies with a gun. Taproot. Medic. Human rights. Property rights. Violence. Uh, the initiation of aggressive force. Ego. The self. Agora. The second realm. Wealth. Capital. Privacy. A defensive weapon. Hate speech. Free speech. Gold. <laughs> Bitcoin. <laughs> Guns. Defensive weapons. Revolution. Bitcoin. Socialism. Not the tyranny. Family. Now, uh, prosperity. Inequality. Uh, One-sided enforcement of property rights. Hell. <laughs> Democracy. <laughs> Liberty. Anarchy. Energy. Hmm. Proof of work. And Bitcoin. Magic internet money. Max, 
That's all I got for you, man. I uh, really, really enjoyed this. I'm sure we could go on for, for several hours, and, and I suspect someday when we meet in, in Meet Space, we'll sit down over some coffee or some beer and extend this conversation for those several hours. But until then, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on. Is there uh, any place you wanted to direct uh, the listeners to? Well, John, thank you very much for the invite. Uh, I'm glad we made that conversation happen. Really, uh, you, you provided some great questions, and I really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation uh, that you structured here. So thank you very much for the invite. And also thanks to the listeners right, for tuning in and, and for accumulating this knowledge. Um, where, where can I send you to? Uh, TowardsLiberty.com is my personal website uh, with several resource links, uh, both regarding uh, Austrian economics, Bitcoin, and natural law, freedom philosophy. Uh, so if you would like to accumulate more knowledge in this regard, there are many links on this website, uh, as well uh, to the videos and podcasts that I've uh, produced so far. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe specifically as an actionable insight, check out docs.wasabiwallet.io, uh, which is a written tutorial uh, in depth about how to use this very powerful privacy weapon uh, to protect you and your loved ones uh, with the SATs uh, and so that nobody can steal them from you. Awesome. Well, look, man, I, uh, I, I was super happy to uh, be reintroduced to you recently on the other podcast. And then after looking into you a bit and consuming your content, just such admiration for, quote, you know, how you Bitcoin and the type of Bitcoiner you are. I just, uh, you know, really admire your approach and uh, think you're doing an awesome job in, in everything that you're doing in the space. So just keep it up. Well, thank you very much, John. I really do appreciate it. And again, this goes out to you. Uh, you know, producing a podcast and sharing this knowledge is quite invaluable. Uh, so, so keep it up, you know, continue decreasing the knowledge differential. Uh, and, and let's build a strong gathering of peers uh, to, you know, build our second realm in the agora uh, of a division of labor and, and build uh, something beautiful and delightful. Thank you very much. 100%, man. Appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Bye bye, John. See ya.